Hey listener, it's Tino Tender Charles Rutanera here. I just wanted to wish everyone out there who is listening and who has supported my podcast very happy holidays and very prosperous 2018. If you have found any one of my podcasts inspirational, please take a second to share the podcast with anyone who might benefit from it. Tell them about it. Direct them to the podcast Facebook page by just searching on On the Shoulders of Giants podcast in the Facebook search field or direct them to my website. That's tcrutanera.com. That's T-C-R-U-T-A-N-H-I-R-A.com. Or lastly, just show them how to subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed. Thank you again for all your support and encouragement and for being the giants whose shoulders of support I can stand on. I'm Tinotenda Charles Rutanera, and this is a podcast on the shoulders of giants, where we get to chat with incredibly inspiring people who have broken the status quo or faced down adversity or taken the road less traveled and positively impacted the lives of other people. We get to hear their stories and gain knowledge and insights into how their professional and personal lives mix every day to create lessons and insights for others to follow. Because the only way to really grow is by building on previous discoveries. And only then can we truly see further by standing on the shoulders of giants. It was about 2003 and I was dating a girl who worked as a caregiver. One day she asked me to join her at dinner at a home of her favorite client. While we were having dinner with the couple, a fifth person came to the house and joined us for dinner. That person happened to be the daughter of the couple, and while I didn't get into deep conversation with her, I could tell by the way she talked and conducted herself, there was something about this woman. Fast forward a couple of years, I saw a newspaper article praising the work of the Vermont Teddy Bear Corporation CEO for the miracle that she had performed, pulling off a rescue from the company's meltdown. I instantly recognized the face. It was the lady from the dinner party several years ago. Almost 15 years later, here I am interviewing this lady on my podcast. Elizabeth Robert, Liz, is the former CEO of the Vermont Teddy Bear Company, who provided critical leadership during the growth, diversification, and successful privatization and sale of the company. Under her leadership, Vermont Teddy Bear Corporation grew from $16 million to $75 million in sales. Liz is now the CEO of Terry Bicycles. She acquired Terry and moved it from Rochester, New York to Burlington, Vermont in 2009. Terry Bicycles is a designer and direct marketer of high-end women's bicycles, cycling apparel, and accessories, and curates a cycling lifestyle for women. Liz, welcome to the On the Shoulders of Giants podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. So I always like to start my podcast by looking at my guests' childhood and how their childhood informed the decisions and choices that they make as adults. 
So could you tell me about the role of women in your life, uh, your mother and grandmother, and how those formative experiences from your childhood and upbringing have made you who you are today? Sure. Well, um, my both my mother and my uh, grandmother were very strong and professional women. Uh, my grandmother uh, was an Armenian refugee that came uh, during the genocide, the Turkish genocide in Armenia, back at the uh, early part of the 20th century. And uh, she worked in Paris for the laboratory of Madame Curie. She married my grandfather, who was working uh, as an orthopedic surgeon in Paris during the First World War, and returned to Geneva, Switzerland with him. I always remember her as being very strong-willed, but as I got older and began to reflect on her life, I became aware of how difficult it had been. Uh, She had actually witnessed the murder of uh, a good part of her family and had managed to escape from uh, Armenia uh, with her two smallest brothers. Uh, So she was always an inspiration to me, uh, perhaps just a benchmark or a bellwether for resilience. And uh, I always marveled that this person could have endured so much and uh, and been so successful. She did go on to be one of the first female pediatricians uh, in Geneva, Switzerland. And then my mother, although she was, you know, all American made, also was a professional. Uh, She went to Smith College and uh, soon after became an editor, a photographic editor initially for uh, Time Life magazine. And uh, she worked and lived in New York uh, until she was in her early 30s when she met my father. And they were married when she was about 34, and I was born when she was about 35. So, again, running a bit counter to the grain of women in her era, and a deeply independent, intellectual, um, professional woman. So I grew up and surrounded by these women who had been uh, professionals and had uh, faced many challenges, uh, sort of bucking the tides and and the trends of their time. Uh, and uh, I think much of my resilience and my uh, fortitude, my ability to sort of rise to challenges uh, is definitely related to to them. That's fantastic. So at what age do you, did you start to see your life start to mirror the footsteps of your mother and grandmother? Well, I would say it was when I was in eighth grade. And uh, I had been, I had become aware of the opportunity to go away to school. Uh, I had several friends in my elementary school class who had gone to private school. And uh, while no one in my family had ever done so, this idea was introduced to me and I grabbed onto it. And one evening uh, in the fall uh, when I was in eighth grade, proposed that uh, I take a look at boarding school and that uh, we explore this as an option for my high school education. And in fact, my mother was devastated. She felt like she'd failed as a mother. She was mortally (laughs) upset. Uh, But I would say that uh, ultimately rallied, came around. We looked at private schools and I ultimately chose one. Uh, But that was my first foray into independence and deciding that, you know, I at the age of 13, uh, could direct my own life. 
Wow. Not too many kids voluntarily go to boarding school. So that's fantastic to hear. That's correct. And I loved every minute of it, by the way. I, I made a good choice as to where to go. And uh, I definitely believe that those four years were very formative uh, in my in my upbringing. And again, in my ability to sort of rise to challenges uh, and also seeking out opportunities that uh, don't necessarily just uh, present themselves to you. You have to scratch below the surface and sort of look for um, how to make the most out of life. Yeah, that's true. So you ultimately ended up at Middlebury College and then uh, did an MBA at UVM. Uh, did you have a specific career in mind as you were going through college? Absolutely not. Uh, I was a total dilettante and uh, started off thinking I would uh, be a pre-med student. Um, I ended up uh, sort of falling in love with literature and art history, and uh, but but soon figured out that uh, I was suffering at the uh, at the hand of being a dilettante. And if I had if I wanted to continue playing lacrosse, I would have to define a major which would um, have the least number of required courses. And so I kind of um, it was a bit of a cop out, and I. I, I decided to major in French and was able to take a lot of, ex because I spoke French fluently, was able to take a lot of the uh, exemptions. So I was able to graduate. Obviously, I needed a full plate or a full slate of credits for graduation, but I didn't require as many um, specific courses for my major. And uh, so by default, I became a French major. Hmm. Interesting. And so the business part came in how? So the business part came in, uh, it was a hot summer night, and I had just graduated from from Middlebury and was contemplating uh, pursuing an opportunity to be on one of the U.S. Olympic development teams down in Boston. I had been invited to tryouts, and uh, I remember my father came into my, my room, having learned of all of this, and gave me that talking to and said, you know, you'll never make a career out of lacrosse. Uh, and he thought it a better idea that I, you know, ease my way into some other trajectory. And I so happened, it was quite fortuitous, uh, you know, I had the opportunity to apply um, for a job at the First National Bank of Boston. They had, in fact, recruited me, which they often do that. They recruit students at these uh, liberal arts colleges. And so I just happened to have a letter inviting me in. Uh, to apply for a position in their loan officer development program. And having completely reneged on the process while I was a senior in college, I decided, well, this is what I will do at least for the next year. And uh, and so, lo and behold, I, I got my foothold in business. Uh, after about a year, I ended up uh, marrying my husband and moving back to uh, Vermont. He was, uh, in fact, a Middlebury College professor. And uh, once back in Vermont, found myself applying for a job in sort of corporate fashion. I I interviewed with uh, the Chittenden Bank. It was the Chittenden Bank at the time and IBM and a few other institutions, corporations up here, um, and found nothing. They, they really either weren't hiring or I didn't have uh, the specific skills that they were looking for. Uh, so I ended up uh, deciding to go to business school. And that is what 
I would say, cemented my career trajectory in business. Hmm. That's interesting. After completing business school, you ended up working at Vermont Gas, and uh, then you spent four and a half years at a startup called Air Mouse. What was that startup all about? Well, that was probably another um, experience uh, that really taught me resilience. It was a high-tech startup in the uh, age before the dot-com, but it, in fact, was sort of like a dot-com. My engineering partner, uh, Jim Richards, had commercialized a point-and-click technology, hence the name AirMouse. So it was a device that you pointed at a screen and it drove a cursor and you could click and it acted and behaved like a a mouse, only there were no strings attaching it to a computer and uh, there was no ball that you rolled around on the table. It was just a simple point and click device. And I became the business partner um, and uh, we worked hard to develop um, the technology first and then the business. My role was to uh, help raise the money and to sort of build the business processes and uh, forecasting and pricing models and that sort of thing. Meanwhile, uh, my partner did all of the, the, the program, the programming development, software development. Um, and we built that business uh, to a point where we were actually selling uh, game controllers and uh, to Philips Consumer Electronics uh, and presentation devices to companies like Proxima and InFocus for PowerPoint types of presentations. So was this uh, ahead of its time? It was so far ahead of its time that after the patent had expired 17 years later, uh, I finally saw HDTV mainstream in Best Buy in Christmas of, it was about 2008 or nine. Uh, and the fact of the matter is that, you know, we had taken the technology one step further and uh, converted it into chip technology. And at the very end, been trying to sell this technology, these chips, into some of the uh, Asian uh, consumer electronics companies like Matsushita and um, Sony were a couple of examples. Samsung is a, is the company we probably got furthest with. But uh, again, it was so far ahead of its time, it was difficult to monetize, to develop contracts that could actually turn into dollars uh, in the time frame that we needed it to. And so ultimately, the company shifted direction. They decided to uh, go into the design and development of graphical user interfaces. So beyond the remote control and actually trying to develop the interface itself as a means by which to push things along uh, more quickly. But uh, at that point, I left AirMouse, and that ultimately uh, was not a successful strategy. And the company, many years later, um, actually folded. That's too bad because it sounds like they could have been the next uh, you know, years, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we were truly 15 years ahead of our time. And Jim used to always say, too, that uh, information and communication would ultimately be a jack in the wall. And he could not have been more visionary and more absolutely correct. But what we were talking was, you know, back 1991, 1992. Uh, and in fact, um, 
the internet was just being born at the time. I mean, it was mm-hmm. 1992, and I remember having um, internet connectivity for the very first time in our offices, and really not knowing what it was all about. But Jim <laughs> had the vision. Wow. And just way before, way before it was, uh, you know, commercializable. So I'm pretty sure my listeners are familiar with Vermont Teddy Bear Company, but that's where you went to next. And I don't know if people know about the history of the company and uh, John Sortino. Do you mind giving us a quick one-minute uh, history lesson? This might require you digging a little bit in your memory. No, it's pretty much uh, it's cast in my memory pretty thoroughly. <laughs> uh, so John Sortino started uh, the Vermont Teddy Bear Company. Um, making uh, teddy bears by hand uh, and selling them on a cart on Church Street. And uh, initially his purpose in doing that was because he believed that teddy bears, given their history dating back to 1902 and Teddy Roosevelt, uh, should continue to be made in America. So it was a made in America thesis that got him started. And... um, that quickly evolved into making teddy bears for sort of mom and pop uh, collectors and teddy bear shops. And, <clears throat> but soon came to find out that people were asking to have the teddy bears they purchased at the Church Street uh, marketplace in this little cart, having them delivered up to Fletcher Allen as a gift for somebody in the hospital. And he would write a little card and put it in a box. And lo and behold, he would deliver them personally up to the hospital. And that was the beginning of the Bear Grant. Uh, And then a few years later, uh, again, having gone through several reinventions of himself and the company uh, at various stages of, you know, lack of funds and and undeclared bankruptcy. uh, And the idea came to launch the Bear Grant concept on the radio for Valentine's Day. And that was the beginning of the Vermont Teddy Bear Company as we uh, know it today. Uh, they grew in, they grew in, I think it was two years, they grew $11 million in sales. And, uh, you know, they, they very quickly expanded from there. They then uh, moved into the big factory where they currently are now, down in Shelburne. And it was in uh, 1995 that I joined the company, again, sort of on one of its downturns. Uh, it was, uh, once again, in, in deep financial difficulty and way uh, overextended itself uh, in terms of both developing the market as well as investing uh, in this building. They had used the proceeds of an IPO. Uh, virtually all of the proceeds of an IPO to build the building as opposed to providing the working capital necessary to continue to fuel the growth of the market at the time. And uh, it was in the uh, fall of 1995, the company was uh, literally on the verge of bankruptcy when they brought in a new uh, CEO. They brought in Pat Burns, who came from uh, L.L. Bean and the Walt Disney Company. He had previously been the CEO of Disney Direct Marketing. Um, They brought him in uh, to turn the company around, and he hired me as the chief financial officer several weeks after he arrived. And I was hired practically on the spot, and within several weeks, uh, moved from Air Mouse to Teddy Bear. Wow. So... 
from my understanding, the, the, there was nothing warm and fuzzy about uh, the financial state of the company. Um, can you at least answer these two questions for me? How did you become the CEO and um, were you not considered part of the executive management that had led to the company being in that spot in the first place? Well, so let me start by uh, just giving you a bit of uh, feel for my experience as the chief financial officer in those early days. So when I first got there, uh, the company was at a complete standstill. Uh, the radio stations had cut all of our advertising, and uh, fur was not being bare fur was not being delivered, and so our manufacturing floor was completely shut down. Uh, and my first challenge was really to find enough cash to get things uh, started again. And my literally my first move was to recognize a $250,000 receivable. Uh, on the books from um, QVC, the Home Shopping Network. And uh, I called up the people at QVC and offered them a discount if they would pay early. And lo and behold, they did. And we then took that $250,000 to sprinkle across a couple of key radio stations to be caught up so they would begin advertising again on our behalf and to pay for fur to be delivered and a few weeks of wages uh, to get the production floor going again. Um, and then, you know, it was a gradual uh, grind, but uh, the first year was really focused on, on cash and being able to uh, resynchronize, you know, sales with production, with inventory to be able to capitalize on the big holidays that uh, would provide the cash ultimately to get our head above water so that we could sustain ourselves on a, you know, on an, on an annualized basis. And the, then the second uh, was, you know, my, my predecessor, Pat Burns, he came from a retail background and his, uh, you know, his vision for the company was to open up retail stores. And my role in that, again, was to be the business partner. I helped raise some money to finance that in it, those initiatives. We opened a store in Manhattan and one in Freeport, Maine, and one in uh, Conway, New Hampshire. Uh, and, you know, that I was definitely an integral part of uh, the executive team, but operating in deference to the business strategy of the then CEO. And uh, literally a year later, so we'd gotten the first year, we'd gotten our head above water. The second year, we were implementing the strategy to open retail stores. And lo and behold, by the end of that second year, we found ourselves right back in a state of undeclared Chapter 11 as a public company, mind you. Wow. Uh, unable to pay bills, unable to make lease payments, um, as none of those retail stores that we opened came close to hitting their projected sales, their target uh, sales. Right. So it was in the fall of 1997, so two years later, where I confronted uh, our auditors, Arthur Anderson at the time, who told me that as a public company, we were not a going concern. And uh, I had to uh, ultimately uh, work with the board of directors to replace uh, Pat Burns. So we had to uh, remove him as CEO. And uh, I had I took the, the uh, reins as an interim CEO 
meanwhile, uh, worked with uh, the auditors with a small capital provider by the name of Green Mountain Capital. Uh, it was a, a small uh, Vermont venture fund that existed uh, years ago. Um, they, they put uh, a little money in. And with uh, a lot of scrambling and a lot of work directly with the SEC, we were finally able to convince them that we had enough capital and a business plan suitable to be granted a clean opinion uh, as a going concern. This was all in, you know, the September, October timeframe of, of 1997. And uh, that was uh, the moment at which I took the helm. So I guess uh, the question I'd have for you is why would anybody in their right mind put themselves into the captain's chair of a sinking ship? Well, you know, at that time, I had already put two years into this. And uh, during the entire two years I had been there, I, I considered myself a student of the business. I had primary responsibility for the finances, but I took an interest in manufacturing. I took an interest in you know, technology and was part of the process which gave birth to the, our first transactional website in 1997 where we would take orders over the internet and saw the potential for that, uh, which was probably one of my motivations um, in, in taking this on was, you know, having learned uh, the business beyond finance, essentially learning the whole business, including radio. I went to radio school in New York with two of my media buyers at the time oh, wow. to learn, you know, the ins and outs of, of buying radio. Uh, and gradually, you know, developed the confidence to believe that there was enough of a future um, and, a, and a strategic opportunity that um, it made sense. It just felt in my gut that while it was incredibly difficult on a day to day basis, that there was real opportunity here. And there, you know, it was evident in reports and in the data um, of, you know, that was being produced from the new things we were working on. And then, you know, the last thing, honestly, is I had nothing to lose. You know, my predecessor had been the chief executive officer of Disney Direct Marketing. Um, you know, he, he reached a pinnacle in his career. Um, it, he had, there was, you know, he had a lot to lose. Uh, I had just come from Air Mouse, <laughs> which uh, was a, this tiny little startup that nobody knew anything about, really. and uh, um, again, you know, I had built a quiver full of arrows. I, I really saw this as a quantum leap uh, that would allow me to use all of the skill sets that I had accumulated through these uh, various experiences, Vermont Gas and then Air Mouse and then the first two years at uh, Vermont Teddy Bear. And uh, I just sort of felt I was going to be able to do it. And so I did. Hmm. So I want to fast forward to Terry Bicycles, because I want to then tie up these three pillars of, of your experience uh, and see how you handle business operations as well as uh, entrepreneurship. So we'll jump into Terry Bicycles and then kind of loop back around. So can you tell me what is Terry Bicycles? So Terry is a very small company by comparison. We have 17 employees. Um, we are a designer and developer and manufacturer, primarily of women's cycling apparel and bicycle seats. Uh, at one point, we also did make high-end bicycles. Um, 
but that part of the business has uh, been handed over to the founder under a license, so we license her back her name to be able to produce a um, small quantity of high-end custom bicycles into the market, but we're really focused on the apparel and the bicycle seats. Uh, we sell into two channels. Uh, we sell to retailers, other retailers, um, including some small um, independent bike shops. But frankly, that part of the business has waned over the last few years, and our wholesale business really has grown around the larger retailers, such as REI, LL Bean, Backcountry, and most recently we've added Moose Jaw as a customer. So that's an element in the dimension of the business that was new to me. Uh, but and that's always the way it goes, you know. I think there's always something new. And then the second uh, part of the business, uh, which is actually slightly larger in a dollar uh, in a dollar perspective, is a direct-to-consumer business, which is driven uh, by catalog. But increasingly, we're shifting to uh, the web as you know the primary channels, on, uh, including Amazon, uh, by which to drive direct-to-consumer sales. Right. So I'm seeing a pattern here. Um, you seem to always find yourself in these uh, troubled companies. So what? why was this company being sold in the first place? Yeah, so this company uh, really was hit hard by the big, the Great Recession in the 2007-2008 time frame and suffered um, much the way Vermont Teddy Bear did uh, in its direct-to-consumer uh, catalog business. Catalog were, catalogers were some of the hardest-hit uh, retailers in the, uh, in the recession, and, uh, and Terry certainly was as hard-hit as anyone. And so we, you know, my first, um, my first endeavor there was to scale way back on the catalog circulation going into 2009, uh, and then to manage through a cash crisis, uh, very similar to what uh, I did at Vermont Teddy Bear. But I will say that it was even harder because at Vermont Teddy Bear, as I, I like to, to phrase it, there was a lot of juice to squeeze. There were uh, close to 300 employees and uh, there was a lot of fat and a lot of waste at Vermont Teddy Bear. Terry, mm. uh, on the other hand, had been run by a couple of very frugally minded women uh, who ran a very lean and mean uh, machine uh, throughout the Terry history. And so it was, there was just not as much runway by any means. And so it was much more difficult. And it took a lot more time um, to do this. I have to say I personally complicated uh, this turnaround by moving the company. I had spent 11 months commuting from Burlington to Rochester, uh, but I bought the company knowing I was never going to uh, to move, and so the, the company was going to have to move to me. And so we did move the company in December of 2009 uh, to Burlington, and then had to build a whole new team. Uh, so, so that was certainly an additional challenge. Um, you know, meanwhile, we were fighting the day-to-day -day, uh, cash flow challenges, uh, I was also trying to build a team, which, you know, you don't just go and hire 15 people all at once and have it all work out uh, day one. Uh, you know, we, we made some good hires and some not so good hires. And there were a few years where it was very challenging from a people perspective. So this is a question I always intend to find myself asking my guests. Why Vermont? Well, 
you know, of course, making the commitment to move a business from Rochester, New York to Vermont, where I would pay more than double for uh, health care yeah. for our employees. Um, I don't, 50% more approximately in rent. Uh, yeah, the, the cost of doing business in Vermont, obviously, uh, was shocking. And, and moving a company really gave you eyes wide open to exactly the differences mm-hmm. in, in cost structure uh, running businesses in, these, in New York versus versus Vermont. But on the other hand, uh, you know, I've been always a big believer that Vermont uh, is a great place to do business uh, for several reasons. One, there is that Vermont cachet, uh, you know, the Vermont brand cachet. And for an outdoor company, mm-hmm. a bicycling company, uh, it it made a lot of sense to align with the sort of outdoor uh, values and you know outdoor brand spirit of Vermont. And the second reason is people. You know, at the end of the day, employees in Vermont are one very creative. They're much more creative generally uh, than what I've experienced in other places. It's Vermont is a small entrepreneurial state. It's just why do you, why do you think people. that is? Well, I think part of it is because they're they're they people who came you know or grew up in workforces like IDX or IBM or these places where there was a lot of innovation. There would be you know upsizing and then downsizing, and a lot of people got laid off, and then from the, these larger jobs these, in these innovative companies and didn't want to leave. And so, you know, the garden way experience where you get uh, the Will Raps and, uh, frankly, the John Sortinos of the world, um, you know, the, the IDXs where you get the parents who founded My Web Grocer. Uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, that that goes on. And then plus, I think there's something about Vermont winters, the, the just the, the close to the earth uh, mindset that people develop here in Vermont, it makes them that much more resilient mm. to the difficult challenges of life generally. And uh, there's nothing that you want more than employees who can be punched in the gut when you tell them, you know, there's no cash and we're not paying the bills because we can't, uh, but we will figure out how to work through it. Uh, It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's priceless to have people who are able to sort of rise to those kinds of challenges is priceless. And, you know, I just find that to be a trait and character of so many um, of, of those in the Vermont workforce at all levels of the workforce, whether you're talking, you know, the people working in warehouses or the people you know, running your marketing and accounting programs. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good segue for the discussion because I want to talk about uh, the three main companies you work for, Air Mouse, the Vermont Teddy Bear Company, as well as Terry Bicycles, and look at them as a whole. So having researched your work, I found that all the businesses that you have been involved in, you're not the original founder or the originator of the business idea for any of them. So do you consider yourself an entrepreneur or something else? No, definitely I consider myself an entrepreneur. You know, there's a, there's a great uh, definition, and I'll try to articulate it properly, but 
An entrepreneur is someone who uh, creates an enterprise or endeavors to pursue an enterprise uh, by putting people and capital to work. And if you think about that definition, and it comes from the word, you'll appreciate this, Tino, it comes from the French word, entreprendre, which means to um, undertake. Mm -hmm. So an entrepreneur is someone who undertakes an enterprise, uh, putting capital and money together. And, you know, there's in that definition, there is nothing about a novel new idea. It, it's more about the process I of see. bringing a product or, you know, a business to life, uh, leveraging human assets and financial assets. And that is what I have done. So absolutely none of these ideas have been mine, uh, including Pajamagram, which, by the way, was born on my watch at Vermont Teddy Bear, but was the idea of my uh, vice president of marketing at the time, Irene Steiner. Uh, so we, you know, my strength as a leader and as a CEO has been to nurture creativity, to recognize the good ideas when they're delivered, uh, and to be able to execute on them, whether that is operationally or financially. And uh, so in each one of these instances, uh, you know, my financial background and my ability to nurture the creative elements within the company, the creative people, um, and, and sort of, you know, help fuel the creative energy of the enterprise. I think there's something to be said about energy and, um, you know, excitement and uh, persistence. And, you know, that, that just sort of rubs off on people. Passion, just passion and, uh, and fueling these enterprises with that passion um, has helped further these, these, uh, the ideas of others. Oh, that's uh, really, really insightful. So, from CEO at Vermont Teddy Bear Company, you took a huge pivot to to take over a small business. Talk to me about the decision to take that risk and also why you would give up being a CEO of a multi-million dollar company that was that had successfully turned around and to then start all over again with the uncertainties of a startup that was struggling. Well, um, the story of my departure from Vermont Teddy Bear uh, is a difficult one. I um, had sold the company uh, back in 2005 to a group of um, private equity investors. Um, and, you know, I had essentially committed myself to uh, staying with the business. And I quite quickly thereafter figured out that I, it was not a place I wanted to be. I, I just was not suited to working with private equity. There was something about sort of the stultification of creative processes. There was, you know, a, a different mindset um, about the business and, and its purpose and its mission that I just did not get along with. And so I ended up leaving in 2008 and uh, truly wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I was sure that whatever I did would have to be on my own. And I, I was not going to partner with venture capital uh, anymore, at least not in a, you know, in a way where they were in control. Mm. And so I, um, you know, I 
looked around at a number of different investment opportunities and wrestled a bit with the idea of being passive or, you know, an owner-operator again. Um, you know, at, at the time, I was in my uh, early 50s, and, uh, you know, I was not sure how much gas I had left. Uh, but, again, sort of by chance, uh, this business, this Terry, was presented to me by a catalog consultant that I had been working with uh, at Teddy Bear, um, who mentioned that this company was not only for sale, but really needed uh, operational management. And uh, so I thought about it a bit, and I loved the idea of uh, the industry. I loved the idea of being a part of the outdoor industry, and very specifically cycling. I had taken up cycling uh, at the end of my tenure at Vermont Teddy Bear. And um, so I, I really liked that idea. And then, you know, as I put my nose under the hood, I realized that, you know, this was going to be had for a very good price, uh, that it was a risk that was manageable and would allow me to not put, you know, my, my, in, in my heirs at risk. I could, it was not going to be more than I could chew financially. Um, and so, you know, I, I decided that I had enough gas in the tank to take on one more big thing. And it was a bit big thing. I, I will tell you honestly that uh, the turnaround of Terry was far more difficult than the turnaround of, of uh, Vermont Teddy Bear. Uh, for the reasons that I mentioned before, you right. know, that uh, Teddy Bear had way more juice. This was a much smaller operation with much less runway. And uh, and also by being small, there just was less to work with uh, in terms of you know reinitiating product development and new marketing programs. Right. You know, I had just a very small group of people to to rely on and to, to work with to to make these big changes. And so it took more time. Mm. So two two part question: Are you a risk taker? And also, I'm curious about the decision making process of an entrepreneur. How much of your decision making is instinctual versus analytical? Well, I would say that I am a really cautious entrepreneur, and I am a really risk averse entrepreneur. <laughs> I definitely uh, don't move on impulse, and uh, you know I'm exceedingly thoughtful. But not, it's not just about the data. Uh, I like to think that it's truly a, um, uh, you know, a multi-pronged investment analysis that I go through, whether it was the decision to take on uh, the teddy bear company. Uh, and again, it involves learning and really trying to understand the industry and the business and the market and, and the customer. And is it real or not? And, uh, you know, I, I think that's what it all boils down to is, is it real or not? And it is partly the customer and the market that you read to tell you whether it's real or not. But it's also, frankly, the employees. The people who are working for an enterprise who are truly vested in its mission are vested for a reason. I think they're vested because they know it's real and that, you know, the customer really does want the product or the service. Uh, and so by taking the temperature and learning 
uh, the mindsets of the people at this little Terry certainly gave me a lot of insight into whether this was real or not. And if it's real, if there is a customer who wants to buy a product, then I think the rest is where my skill set, um, I can believe in it. And I, I definitely, in each of these instances, believe that I could make it work. But I had to read that. I had to develop that intimate understanding that each of these was real. And, of course, in the teddy bear scenario, the idea of selling a teddy bear to a grown man for Valentine's Day wasn't <laughs> everyone's idea of, of reality. So, you know, there was certainly an added dimension of is this real right. uh, that I had to get my head around. But, of course, I'd had two years of experience within the business to see how it worked. And um, so, you know, became accustomed to that over a period of time. I see. So what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who are starting out or running their own business ideas in their basement or their spare bedrooms? And I realize this could be an entire podcast episode on its own. Uh, but what are the sort of uh, maybe two or three things that you would want to share? Well, I think, you know, again, coming back to risk averse, I'm not the type of person that would advocate for someone, you know, putting three mortgages on their house and, you know, risking the, uh, the well-being of their, of their families um, just to do something crazy. Uh, at the same time, you know, coming back around to uh, the is it real question, I mean, if you really believe that it is real, that there is a customer who really wants your product, um, and that your product is somehow uniquely meaningful in the market as compared to other things that this person might buy, uh, then I would say absolutely go for it. But try to contain it so that, you know, you insulate your family from too much risk. And, you know, by insulating yourself or your family and sort of creating a separate world that's sort of financially constrained or contained, it gives you that much more latitude to take risks within the business. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is uh, a balancing act. But um, that, those are the two most important uh, things that I, I would advise. Um, make sure it's real and make sure that it is self-contained and you're not mortgaging the future of your children. But, you know, beyond that, I, in terms of more practical advice, I think um, develop budgets and understand where the cash is going in a business from day one. Uh, because ultimately, you know, as the sales begin to increase, you want to be able to balance the sales with some level of uh, operational efficiency so that you make money. Companies, entrepreneurs who believe they can just go on losing money and from round to round to round to round to round of new venture capital <laughs> are on a road, you know, that will never be successful in my opinion. And the quicker you can get to profitability and uh, uh, provide for your working capital needs with a bank, you know, bank debt. A lot of people think that's a dirty word, but a bank has got, you know, a, a 
frankly, a, a lot more flexibility in many ways than uh, tying yourself to to uh, private equity and private equity particularly that's below water. Budgets and, and make money. Don't just plan on uh, raising capital forever. So just a question on the debt piece. Um, I am usually debt averse. Um, your recommendation would be like if you're starting a new business to not be afraid to go to the banks and getting a bank loan. I am a big believer in using a bank for working capital. So if you need to build inventory that you know will ultimately sell and you take the proceeds from sales and pay down the loan, uh, you know, I think that's a, a very healthy platform to finance growth. Uh, I'm a big believer. This will take me all the way back to my UVM business school days. But, uh, you know, uh, marrying up the sources and uses of funds. So using, you know, equity capital for long-term product development initiatives, uh, business development initiatives, new strategies, great. But when you get to uh, simple working capital, you know, you're much better off uh, being in a position, you know, of profitability and financial strength where you can borrow working capital to finance uh, inventory and accounts receivable. Right, right. Because ultimately you want to be using working capital anyway because that's a lot less risky. And it's a lot less expensive. So talking about mortgaging your the future of your children, <laughs> um, I'll get you out of here on these two last questions. You recently became a grandmother. Um, how has that changed you as a person and as a entrepreneur? Uh, well, it's probably a little too soon to tell. Um, Ethan is 10 months and Otis is five months. But one thing that I already have noticed is just, again, uh, and from the very beginning of, of human life, how awesome it is to watch people develop their potential. To see, you know, these little boys pass these milestones, whether it's the first smile or uh, sitting up or grabbing something or their first word, uh, it, it just it, it's just a miracle how people evolve and, you know, how how there is so much potential in human beings. And I think one of the things that I've loved about being an entrepreneur is being able to draw out the potential in people and the potential that oftentimes they don't even know they have. Uh, And so as I look back on my days at Teddy Bear and now Terry, where I've been there long enough to see some people uh, take some fairly quantum leaps themselves, uh, you know, I, I really... Um, I find that to be the most rewarding part of what I've done in business is really to, just to see people grow and take on responsibility and then uh, oftentimes go on to much bigger and better jobs and, and lucrative careers in whole different industries. That's interesting. I mean, we can learn so much from, from children and uh, like the one thing that you did say, which is... Um growing from the potential that you don't realize that you have. I mean, kids don't have any of those preconceived ideas of what they're capable of or what they're not. And so it's a very, very good example and analogy. So in closing, I have a question that I ask all of my guests. If you could travel back in time and have a conversation with a younger version of yourself, what words of wisdom would you say to yourself? 
Um, you know, I, I've been so driven my entire life that I think I would, knowing how so often I put so much more effort into something than is probably necessary, I would try to temper my drive just a little bit, um, or at least uh, convince myself when to let up the gas pedal a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I, I find myself constantly uh, looking over my shoulder, wanting to know what's going to bite me, and constantly sort of relentlessly trying to move things forward. And uh, I, I, I think as I get older, I realize that an awful lot happens anyway uh, and doesn't have to be propelled quite so hard. Well, it is interesting, though, that probably without that drive, you might not be where you are today. <laughs> um, right. I mean, it is a, it is a balancing act. Mm. And, uh, but just maybe trying to understand where and when I have the opportunity to not drive quite so hard um, would be the advice I would give myself. Absolutely. So uh, would you like to share how people can learn about you and uh, Terry Bicycles? Well, our website is uh, at terrybicycles.com, and uh, anyone can feel free to email me at liz at terrybicycles.com. Super. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for, for taking the time to join us. Um, I've learned a lot from you over this last hour. Um, you're an inspiration to me and also to many others, including a lot of women professionals and entrepreneurs that I know of. And as a father of a young lady, I am also grateful to people like yourself who have broken through glass ceilings and paved the way for other women to follow, to grow professionally and to shine, uh, not with sparkles, but with charisma, confidence and business acumen. And these characteristics are not reserved for men alone. So I wish you all the very best in your future endeavors. And I thank you again for being a guest on my podcast. Good to talk to you, Tino. Wonderful. And with that, we'll wrap up the show. Next time on the podcast, On the Shoulders of Giants, we learn from Jerry Greenfield how two overweight underachievers with counterculture values kept a 50-year relationship and developed the best ice cream in the world right here in Burlington, Vermont. We both graduated together in 1969, and uh, Ben went to college, although he didn't really want to go, but his parents wanted him to go. And he went for about a year and a half, and he dropped out of school, and he went back to school a couple more times and dropped out again. And he eventually was working all sorts of different jobs, mostly to entertain himself. And he had tried to become an organic gardener. And, and right before we opened up our little ice cream shop, Ben was making pottery uh, and wanted to become a potter, but he wasn't really selling enough pottery to support himself. And I went to college, I did four years straight, and I uh, was trying to get into medical school, and I got rejected from all the medical schools that I applied to. So Ben was failing at 
becoming a potter and I was failing at trying to become a doctor and we had always stayed in touch and we thought, well, why don't we try to get together and try to do something fun and, uh, you know, we, we had always liked to eat uh, and so we thought we would just open up some kind of food thing. We picked ice cream because homemade ice cream was making somewhat of a resurgence and that's that that's all the thought that went into it. There was not a whole lot of planning. It, I think it's so interesting because people look at Ben and Jerry's as this uh, you know very successful company, which it is. But but the the roots of it, and certainly the roots for Ben and me, were a failure of not of not being able to succeed with the things we were trying to do.